You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. All right, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. We are going back to Mount Sinai tonight. And um, we're going to pick, off, pick up pretty much where we left off last week. Uh, we're going to kind of rehash some of what we talked about, but um, cover a lot of ground tonight. We're going to try to get through chapter 31. Y'all aren't even listening to what I'm saying. You do realize there's only like, including tonight, four weeks of this left. And we're on chapter 19, and there's 40 chapters. So we've got to kind of speed it up. All right, here we go. Chapter 19, verse 1 says this On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness, <clears throat> excuse me, of Sinai. <clears throat> they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen. What I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I want you to go back to verse 4, and I want you to underline that phrase, or at least make note of the phrase, you yourselves have seen as I'm reading that this week, um, the Lord just put this on my heart actually through a conversation that I recently had with a, with a guy. Uh, I was having lunch with him recently, and, and he's wrestling with whether or not to believe in, in, in God. Like, he doesn't believe in God at this point, doesn't believe in Jesus at this point. And, uh, and so we're talking, and, and there's, <coughs> excuse me, there's different reasons that he's wrestling with this, and we're talking through those reasons. But ultimately, what it came to for him was, he said to me, he was like, dude, I, I just... I'm waiting for that moment for God to show himself to me. I'm waiting for that moment for like, like the sign. And, uh, and, and I remember when, when they said that to me, I'm waiting for that sign. I, I, just, I just was thinking, you know, I feel like that's the case for so many of us. So many of us were waiting for the sign from God before we really believe in him, really trust in him. And, and coming out of this weekend, my heart was just so convicted by this fact. God has already given us a sign. Jesus resurrecting from the dead is the untrumpable sign of all signs. And in Israel, he was, they were privileged to have all these different signs or to be able to see God do all these different things for them. I mean, they're coming out of when, when God says this, he's saying, you've seen what I've done for you in, in setting you free from Egypt, taking you through the Red Sea. At this point, they'd seen in the desert where there was no water, God provided water. Where there was no food, he provided food. So they'd seen some some pretty amazing things, but aren't we so much more privileged uh, by the fact that on top of not only just seeing the resurrection of Christ, which aren't we so much more privileged just for having seen or, or, or being able to look back and know that Jesus resurrected from the dead, we're privileged as well to have history full of, of testimonies of God changing people's lives and, and, and showing the power, his transforming power through different people's lives um, all throughout history, not just all throughout history, but like right now today. Um, the past two weeks at Overflow, we've been able to see 
multiple people get baptized and, and hear their stories and the transforming power of God's work in their lives. So, so God has already given us a sign. And so you look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He says, now therefore. In other words, therefore, in light of what you've seen, in light of what you've experienced, now that you've seen this, now what? What should you do? What should your your response be? And and he says, look, I want to make you my treasured possession. I want to make you um, a kingdom of priests. I want to make you a, a holy nation. And the reality is God has made that same proposition to you and me. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once again, I've said this a bunch in this series already, our story is a lot like Israel's story. God, he set Israel free from slavery in Egypt and called them to be his treasured possession. In the same way, God, he wants to set each of us free from slavery to sin and death and then call us to be his treasured possession. And, and, and so understanding that, the question now is, now therefore what? Like he says, now therefore, now therefore, many of you, you're in that now therefore moment. Those of you who are still waiting for your sign, you've been given your sign in the resurrection of Christ and in transformed lives of people around you and throughout history. And so my question, if you are one of those people who's waiting for your sign, waiting for that quote-unquote God a moment or God epiphany or, or enlightenment moment, whatever you want to call it, why are you still waiting? He says, now therefore, if, if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, God's word clearly says that all of us are sinners and, and your sin, no matter how big or small or how many or how few, all of us have sinned and our sin separates us from God and leads to hell. But scripture goes on to very clearly say as well, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So many of you, some of you at least in this room, are in your now what moment. What are you going to do in response? And, and our campuses are full of people in that now what moment. What are you going to do in response? And so last week we looked at uh, all, of Act, all, of Acts, all of Exodus chapter 19. Uh, verses 1 through 25, and I don't know if you really, really remember last week, but God comes down on Mount Sinai, and, and just imagining what that moment had to have been like, I, I can't even begin to fathom, but we, we saw that when God comes down, what happens? What happens? People tremble. And, and we asked the question, why were they trembling? And we saw really a, a few things. One, they trembled at his size, they trembled at his power, and they trembled at his holiness, And that's what leads us into Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 tonight. It says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it 
You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this is one of the most popular places in scripture. You see uh, eight times it says, you shall. And every one of those times it's a command. You see two other times, one time it says, remember, that's a command. And another time it says, honor, that's a command. So eight you shalls and two or one remember, one honor. How many commands is that? How many commands is that? Okay. So like this, this side can count. Everybody else can't count. Uh, ten commands. This is a very famous part of Scripture, the Ten Commandments. And uh, let me tell you what's ironic about this, though. As I'm, as I'm studying this this week and actually going back a few months ago preparing for this series Understanding that the Ten Commandments is, uh, you know, one of the most popular places in Scripture, my, my plan was to just kind of brush over this and move on, skip over it. But as I was studying this week, I was thinking, you know what's ironic about this? What's ironic is, even though this is one of the most famous parts of Scripture, many of us can't even name all Ten Commandments. Many of us, prior to tonight, didn't really even know that the Ten Commandments came in Exodus chapter 20. And uh, to test my theory... I had my interns, uh, Matt, Ingrid, and Bree out tonight um, with this, um, some of you they were done before you got here, but with this uh, survey, Ten Commandments survey, and basically asked, uh, how many of the Ten Commandments can you name? And then they would check them off as you named them. And then uh, I, I had a little section here, what commands did they list that are not commands? And then, uh, and then also they were going to ask you, where in the Bible are the Ten Commandments found? Now, I will say this, uh, most of you cheated because... Uh, you, you uh, well, you just you're, you use context clues and guess that the Ten Commandments are in Exodus because we're studying Exodus. So most people said Exodus, although not everybody said Exodus. Uh, some said James, some said Matthew, uh, you know, some said other places. And then uh, here's what's interesting. I didn't count how many this is. I would guess this is at least 30, maybe 50 surveys. Three got all ten. And uh, most didn't get many. In fact, there's one. Where is it? And, and Matt was the one who interviewed this person, got one of the commandments right, and he ratted her out, uh, his girlfriend Kaylee. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Kaylee, to do that to you, but uh, I think it's awesome. Um, Matt, Matt, he's one of our interns, and uh, his girlfriend knows one of the commandments, so that's great. Um, some people said uh, one of the commandments was don't get drunk. One said don't cheat. Uh, one said uh, love your neighbors yourself. One said go to church as a family. Um, 
there were a few others in here. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bringing all that up to make fun of anybody except Kaylee. Sorry, I made fun of you. Uh, but the reason I bring that up is because this is a really well-known, or at least in theory, well-known part of Scripture. And, and I think it speaks to the reality that a lot of, I mean, just our whole understanding of the Bible. Like, we know about it, but we don't really even know what it says. Or we're somewhat familiar with it, and as a result, we begin to kind of create our own interpretations or own sayings of what's there. Like, like, there were a lot of people who said things that were, they said were commandments that weren't commandments. And, and we do this in all places of Scripture. Like, we're familiar a little bit with it, and because we haven't really dug into it and visited it recently ourselves, it becomes our own interpretation of stuff that God really have never even said. You follow what I'm saying? Um, and so my intention tonight was to uh, not even deal with these ten, just to brush over them, but I, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to look at each ten and um, just kind of see where God leads us in this discussion. Tonight's going to be unique. Um, if this is your first time or your second time or whatever, uh, tonight's not really going to be a normal overflow sermon. It's going to be more so like a discussion that we're having. And um, so I don't know if I should apologize for that or that's a good thing or what, but um, who knows? Here we go. Verse 3, chapter 20, verse 3. First command, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, I, I don't know when you hear this what you think. I think we could list tons and tons of gods that quote-unquote gods that we worship in our culture. But as I'm thinking about this, what the Lord laid on my heart was, I think the biggest God, the most popular God of our culture is the God of self. I think we worship more than any other God, the God of self, even self-professing Christians saying that they worship Jesus, the God who sent Jesus, the Trinity God. Um, I think even most of us, more than him, worship the God of self. And I think it's proven by the way that we deal with the rest of the nine commandments and really the rest of scripture as a whole. Think about it this way. Which is more important uh, when reading a book or listening to a speech? Is, is it uh, the author or speaker's intended meaning or the reader or audience's interpretation of what the author or the speaker said? Which is more important? What the author intends or the speaker intends to say or, or how you, the audience, interprets what he says? Which is more important? Yes, yeah, what they intend to say. But the greatest God in our culture is God of self, and it's proven by the fact that in our culture, we have placed so much more weight on our own interpretation of God's word than we have on the intended meaning of God's word. You follow what I'm saying? Like it's more about what you think it says than what he actually intended to say. Remember last week we said this, it doesn't really matter who you, who you think God is. What matters is who God actually is. Because listen, if God really does exist, then again, it doesn't matter who you think he is, but it matters who he actually is. And in the same way, it doesn't really matter what you think God has said. What matters is what God has actually said. Are you following my train of thought? Now, now hold on to that as we move forward. Verse four, second command, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers uh, on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second commandment is essentially you shouldn't have carved images of gods. You shouldn't make those. You just shouldn't have them. And in our culture, honestly, this really isn't a huge thing that we've bought into. It's not a huge thing that we, we do. 
But if you go to other cultures around the world, specifically a culture like India, um, if you've ever been to India or get to go to India, almost every single store, almost every single shop, house, restaurant, wherever you go, almost literally every place you go, there will be a carved image or at least a picture of one of their gods on the wall. Like if you go into a home in India, they're going to have a carved image or, or a picture of a god or at least or multiple gods that they worship in their home. If you go to a store, same thing. Um, it's all over the place. And, and uh, there's one point... Uh, one of the more recent times that I've, I've, I've been to India, uh, we drove to the top of this mountain, and they had this massive statue of this big black bull, which represented one of their gods with these dark red eyeballs. And people were in front of this big, huge statue on the top of this mountain, like bowing down, worshiping this statue who they believe represented their god. Now, that's not something that we do a lot in our culture. That's huge in other cultures. He says very clearly right here, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but we do this constantly. Um, I don't know if you've noticed the change in, 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 in TV over the past few years, but it's happening fast where certain words are allowed on, on just regular television that used to not be allowed at all. And, and what I have found the most interesting is, is the phrase GD, I'm not going to say it, but GD, is totally loud on TV now over other cuss words that are still kind of outlawed on, outlawed on TV. And, and I find that very interesting, one, because, I mean, from a Christian's perspective, like, that's, that's way worse than just, you know, dropping an S-bomb or an F-bomb or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but, but it's becoming so just normal in our culture. You ever wonder what God thinks of, of the phrase OMG? Or even just the initials OMG. Like I know a lot of times when you say OMG, you're thinking, oh my goodness, or oh my gosh, or oh my God. <laughs> but a lot of times, you're, you're not. You're, you're thinking, oh my God. Or, or OMFG. What do you think he thinks about those phrases? And how casually we say those things. How casually we use his name in vain. He commands us here to not do that. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know what's interesting about this command? It's it's almost impossible for us to follow this command in light of one of the gods that we worship in our culture. Uh, the God of busyness, um, or the God of just ambition. Like, for you to achieve your ambitions or your dreams, your goals, like, you don't have the ability to rest on a seventh day because you are so enthralled and so captivated by having this. Essentially, you're worshiping this that, that you can't rest on the seventh day. The God of busyness, the God of dreams and ambitions keeps us from following this command of the Sabbath. And I find it interesting as I was reading uh, verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 9, he says, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 10, the seventh day is a Sabbath to whom? To the Lord. Like just the fact that there should be a day in our life that is set aside to the Lord, which, I mean, the reality is Scripture tells us that our whole lives should be set aside to the Lord, yet we fail at the one day part of it. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. I think most of you got this command uh, in the survey. 
Maybe I didn't phrase it just like that, but um, God very clearly says that. Verse, verse 13, he says, you shall not murder. Now, I find this one interesting. One of the reasons I find it interesting is, is, you know, as we're going through these, I'm sure some of you are thinking, kind of doing a little list in your head of, okay, I haven't done that. Or I'm not doing that. I'm good on that one. Or you're thinking, okay, I don't know. That one's kind of close. And on this one, you shout out murder. You're all like, I'm good. I, I mean, I hope all y'all at least are thinking I'm good. Some of y'all are like, um, you know, um, you shout out murder. Um, but what's interesting is what Jesus goes on to say later in Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, John writes, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now that's a game changer in how we understand this command. It's a game changer in the sense that I'm pretty sure that makes all of us guilty of this command, of breaking this command which is a game changer in the sense of the bigger picture of sin as a whole and how God speaks to sin and the reality that all of us have sinned. And as a result, all of us do stand under the condemnation of God's wrath until, until we take his one root out, which is Jesus. Now kind of hanging with this for a second, it, it's very clear from Scripture, it's a sin to hate. Now this command is especially interesting, I think, in light of the very next command. And when I say that, in light of the next command, in light of the current cultural context and climate. Now I'll get there in a second, but hate and speaking truth are not synonyms. Did you get that? Hate and speaking truth are not synonyms. Truth can be communicated hatefully, but hate and truth are not synonyms. You got that? It's important. Truth can be communicated hatefully, but truth can also be communicated lovingly. Truth can actually be withheld lovingly, but truth can also be withheld hatefully. Let me give you an example of that. This may not be a good one, but um, I see Brandon Fowler over here. Brandon's one of our uh, life group leaders. If you went to Beach Reach, he, he and his wife, Jen, uh, which I guess they're not doing so well because she's not here tonight. Uh, oh, she's up there. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just messing. Um, I don't know. Maybe they aren't doing well. They're not sitting together tonight. What's up with that? Do we need, do we need to talk, Fowlers? Let's have a counseling session right now with, in front of everybody. You've got a lot of ears here to listen. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so let's take Brandon and Jen for an example. Um, you know, they're married, and uh, hopefully they stay married. I don't know. It's looking rough right now. I'm just kidding. Okay, enough of that. But, like, let's say that Jen says to Brandon, and, and I'm sure that, you know, like, this has happened at some point where, you know, maybe she gets a new outfit and she's like, honey, how do I look today? And, and I'm sure that there are some outfits that Brandon's like, eh, you know, it's all right. As opposed to other outfits where he's like, oh, hot dang, you know. <laughs> and, and Brandon, he's keeping a very good poker face here because <laughs> she's got the bird's eye view of his response. He's not, later he's going to be like, oh yeah, it's true. But right now he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about, bro. 
But I'm sure there's a point where she said, hey, how do I look tonight? Or how do you like this outfit? And, uh, and he's probably thought in his mind, well, you know, it's all right. Not my favorite. But that's not what he said, is it? No. He's like, mm-mm. No, he, what he said probably was, baby, you look good tonight. Or you look good this afternoon or whenever it is. That is an example, I think, of with maybe withholding the truth and love. That's a bad example, but withholding the truth and love. Now, it's a lose-lose situation because, uh, I mean, when, when a woman asks you, hey, do I look good in this? It's a lose-lose situation because either you have to lie to God uh, or you have, to, you have to lie and commit, you know, this breaking this command or... Um, you, uh, what am I trying to say here? I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. Or you have to uh, be honest with her, and then you have to deal with the consequences of that for the rest of the day or week or month or year or however long it lasts. <laughs> but that's an example, maybe, maybe a poor example, but of withholding the truth in love. Um, withholding the truth in hate. Maybe an example of that, I don't know, this really isn't an example of withholding the truth in hate. This is more so withholding the truth um, in fear. But let's say this, there's a building on fire. And in that building, you know, there's people like some, of, some people that you know who are asleep and don't know that the building's on fire, but you know the building's on fire. Um, the truth is the building's on fire, and if you don't get out of this building that's on fire, you're going you're gonna to burn up and die. And, and withholding the truth in that situation may be because you're afraid, like some people might withhold the truth because they're afraid, like knowing that if they wake them up from their sleep, they know that they get really hacked off when they get woken up from their sleep in the middle of the night. She's like, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to wake them up from their sleep. So uh, I'm just going to leave and not get burned up, and we'll just see what happens, you know? Like, that's withholding the truth, honestly, in a hateful way at the root of it, or at least, if nothing else, in a fearful way. Now, I'm, I'm getting to the point of saying this. Hate and speaking truth are not synonyms. Truth can be communicated hatefully. Truth can also be communicated lovingly. Unfortunately, taking a biblical stance on certain issues is often labeled as hate, by outsiders, even when that biblical stance is taken in love. You hearing what I'm saying? Unfortunately, taking a biblical stance on certain issues is often labeled as hate by outsiders, even when that biblical stance is taken in love. And, and as a result, it's hard to take a biblical stance on some of what Scripture says, specifically this next command, simply because I know, and, and some of you know, that in doing so, in taking that biblical stance, you are going to be labeled as hateful. I know that in taking this biblical stance, I'm going to be labeled as hateful. But Scripture's very clear. God does not leave room for us to be hateful. It is a command for us to not be hateful. And that's important to understand as we move into this next command. So verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. Um, and I'm just going to be real with you tonight on multiple fronts. Part of the reason we're dealing with each of these Ten Commandments tonight is because God has really convicted my heart this week that we need to deal with this command. We need to deal with it for a couple of reasons. One is I've had multiple conversations this week alone, but in just recent weeks with students in this room, students who are not in this room tonight, who in so many ways are dealing with um, Sexual issues, sexuality issues, um, you and your girlfriend, you know, some of you guys, you and your girlfriend, you are spending the night at each other's house or you're sleeping together or maybe you're not sleeping together, but you're doing other things together and, and there's just that lack of conviction of sin there. And, and 
the, the thing about that is it's, some of you don't even like have a framework for seeing that as sin because you didn't grow up in a home where that was taught to you, that scripture teaches that as sin, and, and, and culture definitely doesn't teach that as sin. Um, one of the other big reasons that, that this particular command has been laid on my heart is because some of the biggest conversations that are taking place in our country right now have to do with the biblical view of sex and sexuality. Um, to be specific, news, news headlines right now are full of conversations over culture's view and, and the biblical view of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Um, most recently, if you've been listening to the news this week, there's a lot of conversations around this Religious Freedom Restoration Act that's happening in Indiana right now and, and kind of in Arkansas, or it is happening in Arkansas. That's been a huge topic of conversation. Um, there, there's, there's huge conversations that are happening right now in our government um, that have huge implications on your lives. And they have huge implications on your children's lives. They have huge implications on the future of religious freedom in this country, Christian or not. Um, and, and I'm on social media. Many of you have friended me on Facebook. And it's been interesting to me over the past few days to, to read um, your responses, your reactions to some of the conversations that are happening in the news. And, and your responses across this room are very diverse. They're all over the place. Um, like if you were to kind of put a continuum out here, some would be on this side of the continuum, whichever side of that is. Some of you would be on this side. Some of you would be here five minutes ago, here now, you know, here in 10 minutes and here tomorrow and then over here like in a week, you know, just all over the place because you're not sure um, where you are. Some of your responses are good. Some, some to be quite honest, are very uninformed. And, and it's, it's obvious for, for all of us in this room that, that it's, we're spending a lot more time listening to the people around us talk about these issues than we are listening to what God's word says about these issues. And, and remember this, it doesn't, really matter who you think God is. What matters is who God actually is. And, and again, it doesn't really matter what you think God said. What matters is what God has actually said. And in our American-given freedoms, we've become entitled to this idea that we're free to think and believe whatever we want to think and believe, which is true. But we've become entitled to this idea that we're free to think and believe whatever we want to believe. Um, in fact, our culture has adopted the idea that sexual freedom trumps everything else. But in that, we've lost sight of the fact that if there truly is a God, which not only do we believe that there is a God, we have every reason to believe that there is a God. And we have every reason to believe that the one true God is the God of this Bible, which if, if you want to know what I'm referring to, we've done uh, talks, I've done some talks in here on the resurrection of Jesus. Can we believe it's true? And I'll just stop, step back and say this. Look, everything in scripture hinges on the resurrection. Like if it happened, then every single human on this planet, like it merits every single human on this planet falling on their knees before the Lord and begging for him to save them, putting their trust in him. If the resurrection didn't happen, then it doesn't matter what else happened. Like, we should abandon this and not do what we're doing right now. All of your questions about God that are unanswered, honestly, if, if the resurrection happened, none of those other questions even matter. And, and we've talked on a couple of occasions. The most recently was, I think, last March, almost this time, a sermon called Future or Funeral. If you want to look it up on the podcast, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus. And, 
And uh, there's a lot of reasons to believe that the resurrection really happened. And honestly, uh, I believe that the evidence that is there points to the only option you have is to believe that the resurrection actually happened. So going back to what I'm saying here, we've become entitled to this idea that, that we're free to think and believe whatever we want to think and believe. But in that, we've lost sight of the fact that if there truly is a God, which, again, we believe there is and have every reason to believe there is, then it really doesn't matter what we believe or think. What matters is who God is and what he's actually said. You can choose to believe whatever you want to believe about God. You can choose to believe whatever you want about what God has or hasn't said. But the bottom line is your opinion, hold my opinion, like our opinions hold no authority at all next to God's. And a little side note here, God doesn't have opinions. Opinions are are open to interpretation. Opinions are open to dispute. But when God speaks, it's true. When God speaks, it's a promise. When God speaks, it's a law. When God speaks, it's an undisputable fact. If it didn't exist prior to God speaking, then once he speaks it, it exists. And so you look at verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is a term for all sexual activity, heterosexual or homosexual, even lust, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus says, you've heard it said, um, this is the AWV, the Austin Wadlow version, you've heard it said that, you know, do not commit adultery. And he says, I'm telling you, even when you look lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. Which, again, you know, kind of like the murder command, a lot of us, when we first hear that, we're like, oh, I'm a virgin. Culturally, spe- culturally speaking, at least, I'm a virgin. I haven't had, had sexual intercourse. So, boom, I'm good to go. But then you hear what Jesus says. He says, no, this is really the heart behind that command. You're like, well, shoot. We all just went down. But adultery is a term for all sexual activity, heterosexual or homosexual, even lust, that happens outside of the God-designed marriage covenant, which we see that God-designed marriage covenant established in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, which we did whole five weeks on that in the Bare Naked series like two years ago. And that God-designed marriage covenant, it's upheld throughout Scripture, but especially it's referred to um, again in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. Now, here's what I'm going to say sucks in church. Here's what sucks. What sucks is that some have made pointing out certain sins, and, and just to be specific, what sucks is some have made pointing out the sin of homosexuality their agenda. Like some churches, some Christians, they've made that their agenda. And you need to know this, that will never be our agenda. Our agenda is Jesus Christ. It always has been Jesus Christ, and it's only going to be Jesus Christ. But that being said, we have to talk about sin. If we don't talk about sin, then we won't understand our need for Jesus. And some will say, and some in here may be thinking this right now, I, I, I'm, based on conversations I've had with some people in here, like I know some people are thinking this right now. Well, Austin, I, I didn't decide to be this way, or I, I didn't decide to feel this way, or I don't even really, I, I struggle with seeing anything wrong with this way. And if that's you, or even if that's not you, you need to hear, you need to hear me. Like I, I'm not going to try and, and pretend that I understand what you're going through. I, I don't. And there are a lot of questions that I have for the Lord, and this is one of them. But again, here's the thing. What we're looking at tonight, these commands, these come from the Bible. And this is either God's word or it's not. 
And if it's God's word, then its authority trumps yours or mine. Its authority trumps the government's authority, and it trumps anything else. And it very clearly says, you shall not commit adultery. So, again, adultery is that term for all sexual activity, heterosexual, homosexual, and even just lust that happens outside of the God-designed marriage covenant. Verse 15 says, you shall not steal. I feel like that one's kind of self-explanatory. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, Lie, gossip, slander. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, don't covet your friend. Like, I mean, I doubt too many of your friends have oxes or oxen, donkeys, um, servants. But don't covet your friend's car. Don't covet your friend's body. Don't covet your friend's girlfriend or boyfriend or your friend's family. I think those are all things that we struggle with coveting. And listen, to these, these aren't suggestions. These are commands from God himself. And so looking at these, I want to start with, okay, how are you doing with these? Now, if that's where we stop, we miss the big picture of what's happening here. Now, I know it's 9.13, but we, we're going to cover a little bit more here. Let me just tell you this. These commands are less you got to hear this. These commands are less about you obeying God and much more about you coming to realize how holy God is. Because essentially what God is doing, he's describing what his holiness looks like. This is one of the most gracious moves of God because in our foolishness, we think we've got what it takes to impress God. In our foolishness, we think we've got what it takes to survive in his presence. We've been brought up in an environment where everyone gets a ribbon simply for showing up and participating. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. Nobody gets a ribbon for just showing up. Nobody gets a ribbon for trying hard. You only get a ribbon if you give up. Give up the idea that you've got what it takes. Give up the idea that you can ever achieve the level of holiness and righteousness and goodness that God requires and realize that you don't stand a chance apart from an unimaginable, undeserving intervention of God's grace, love, and mercy. And notice the people's response. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, they trembled, and what does it say they did? They stood far off. I just imagine as they begin to see this and and recognize the holiness of God as it's revealed to them, they begin to slowly back up because they realize how holy he is. Like there was no, well, God, I disagree with you. Or, well, when he said this, here's what he actually meant. No. Like they feared. They trembled. They stood far off, and again, remember, it doesn't really matter who you think God is. What matters is who God actually is. In the same way, it doesn't really matter what you think God has said. What matters is what did he actually say. 
It doesn't really matter what yours or my standard is. What matters is what is his standard. And this standard that he's laid out in these ten commands for his holiness is impossible. God's holiness is beyond what you or I could ever imagine. And like we saw last week, the holiness of God causes people to tremble because when we see his holiness, we quickly realize that much of what we refuse to call sin is actually sin. When we see the holiness of God, it causes us to tremble because God is unbelievably, unapproachably holy. The holiness of God causes people to tremble because God created us to be holy and we've all epically failed. And anyone who isn't holy must die. The holiness of God causes people to tremble because when we see his holiness, we quickly realize how desperately we need him to graciously and mercifully save us. God's holiness is unachievable. And that's the point of Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. Do you realize that? Like, I think our interpretation of this is, okay, I got a list of things to check off every day and make sure I'm following. And and I'm not saying God doesn't want you to follow these commands, but even more than these commands being about something for you to obey, it's something for us to see how holy God is and the reality that his holiness is unachievable. And just in case you're not grasping yet the weight of what I'm saying, God goes on. In chapters 20, verse 22, all the way through chapter 31, verse 18, he begins to go in more depth on what this law is that he's laying out to Moses. And there's a couple things you see here very quickly. He begins to introduce to us the idea of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was going to be the place that God would dwell among his people. There were basically like three areas in the tabernacle. There was the outer walls. Inside those walls, certain sacrifices of animals and stuff would be made, which we'll talk about in a second. Inside those walls, there was also what was called the tent of meeting. And in the tent of meeting, there were, there were two spaces. There was like this one room uh, separated from this other room. In this first room, there was uh, like this table with some bread on it and some candles and all this other stuff. And then there was this big old curtain. And this big curtain separated the rest of that room from this new room or this other room back here called the holiest of holies. And that was where God would dwell among his people. And there's all these different rules and laws and things that God would that God told his people to do with this tabernacle uh, and, and temple in, in which I would tell you, hey, read, verse, read chapters 20 through 31 later on. Um, but it's really kind of spectacular and incredible when you look at it. And, and uh, what we see in chapters 20 through 31, that's not all that God said about that. Uh, Leviticus, which is uh, coming up next here, this was also what God had spoken Um, to Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai. In fact, if you go to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 34, the very last verse of Leviticus, it essentially says that this this is what God told Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai. So what we get in Exodus is like a glimpse of what God talked about. What we get in Leviticus is a much more in depth picture of what God was telling Moses, revealing to him on Mount Sinai. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you have read Leviticus in here? Be honest, be real. Okay, some of y'all are lying. I know that many of y'all have not read Leviticus. Maybe you've like started it, but don't lie, you didn't finish it. Um, Leviticus is weird, isn't it? It's one of those books where you're like, what the heck is going on? Kill this, kill that. Spread the blood of this. Throw the blood of that. Burn this, burn that. Eat this, don't eat that. Kill this again, kill that. Cut it in half, run between you. All this weird stuff. And you're reading it thinking, what in the world is going on? Like, this is crazy. Um, a couple of years ago, I took a group of students to Ethiopia, East Africa. 
And uh, one of them, maybe a couple of them, is here tonight. Andrew, anybody else went with me to Ethiopia here? Okay, cool. Well, so here's what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to go to Ethiopia and backpack into the Simeon Mountains, which is an incredible mountain range in Ethiopia, and uh, to these little villages and share the gospel with them. Uh, our first day there, one of the girls with us, I had three students with me, one of the girls with us um, started um, feeling bad, and we're sitting in the host home, like we're still in the main city, we hadn't left yet. We're sitting in the host home, and uh, she's like, I don't feel good, I feel like I'm going to throw up, and my first thought is, look, you're in a new country, you're just kind of freaking out because you're far from home, you'll be fine. Um, and about 10 minutes later, she's hurt, like we're sitting on the couch, and all of a sudden she just goes, <gasps> and she runs to the bathroom, tries to get to the bathroom, bathroom to throw up in the toilet, unfortunately the toilet lid was closed, and so she just throws up all over the lid of the toilet and floor and everything, and she had ate a lot that day, so... Uh, there was a lot of it. And uh, so she was really sick, and she kept, you know, getting sick, throwing up and everything. And I'm like, well, that stinks. And uh, then we were like, okay, well, we can just leave her here with these people, and we can still, you know, go into the mountains. Well, that evening, uh, we go back to our hotel to kind of rest for a little bit because it had been a long couple days of traveling. And uh, Andrew and I were sharing a, a room at that point. And he's laying there thinking, man, I'm, I'm feeling sick. And I'm like, man, you just watched a girl throw up. You're fine. And he's like, yeah, you're probably right. And uh, so we, uh, we go back out and uh, get back to this host home. And um, he ends up, uh, I'm, I'm talking to our missionary right by the bathroom. And all of a sudden, you hear this like pitter-patter of like feet on the tile floor. So somebody's running. It's Andrew running to the bathroom, which we're standing right next to. He busts through the door and he turns and he starts puking really loud in the toilet. He's throwing up now. And um, I'm like, well, that stinks. Uh, I mean, literally, it stunk, and also metaphorically, it stunk. And uh, so we're like, I guess we're not going to be uh, going out tomorrow to the Simeon Mountains. Thanks a lot for getting sick. And uh, in the middle of the night, we're staying in the hotel that night. In the middle of the night, um, this other girl who was on the trip with us, she, she calls my room, which I'd moved to a different room because I didn't want to sleep in the same room as Puker over here. And uh, she calls, and he's like, yeah, I'm throwing up now, too. And so I'm staying in a room with another dude now, and I'm like, man, well, shoot, which one of us is going to be throwing up next? And so we're, like, down in Pepto-Bismol and, like, <laughs> drinking all this stuff we probably shouldn't have drank. And uh, that sounded bad, but we were just drinking stuff to keep us from throwing up. Anyways, um, long story short, we didn't end up doing at all what we had gone to Ethiopia to do. And the Lord just totally changed our plans. And, and as a result, we ended up going to these other places and uh, doing different stuff. And, and I'll just tell you this, it's often not until you get home from a trip like that that you really start to learn from your experiences um, what God wanted you to see. And I happened to be le- reading through Leviticus when I got home. And, and again, I don't know if you've read through it before. It's, it's really weird. And weird stuff happens. And I think we stay away from Le- Leviticus because it's weird and it doesn't make sense. I mean, why in the world is there an entire book in the Bible that's all about making animal sacrifices? Like, why in the world would God give such weird laws and commands to his people like this? Um, but being fresh back from Ethiopia, I saw this text in a whole new perspective. And there's two thoughts or two, like, realizations I saw from this text. First thought that came to my mind was this. The tabernacle, where they were making all these animal sacrifices that God had commanded them to make for different sins that they were committing, the tabernacle grounds, they had to have stunk terribly from all of the rotting carcass and blood from the animals. And, and this thought came to my mind because in our change of plans in Ethiopia, we ended up driving um, to the border of Sudan. And this area where we went to, I mean, we were looking at Sudan from Ethiopia and we're praying over this 200-mile region where there was no known believer. 
And that was about three or four years ago, two or three years ago. So my assumption is there's still probably no known believer or not many believers in this 200-mile radius area. So we're just praying over this. And as we're driving back, we go through this village. And about two miles or so away from this village, you start to smell something. It's terrible. I mean, like rank, horrible, disgusting smell. And, and we get to the village, and it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. What we realize is we're coming up on a village where their main industry was uh, tanning hides. So they would kill these animals, and then they'd tan the hides and make leather out of it. And it stunk because there was this animal flesh sitting out in the heat of the sun, burning, and, and it just put off this terrible, rotten smell. Um, when I traveled to a lot of different countries, uh, I, well, any country, I like to uh, bring home knives from different countries, weapons and stuff. I've got a lot of weapons uh, from other countries. Also, I like it when students bring me weapons from other countries. So, um, But on that trip, I, I, brought, I, brought, uh, I brought back uh, this sweet knife. I, I meant to bring it to my office. Uh, don't mess with me in my office. i got weapons. Uh, but it's got, the, the covering for it is made out of hide, and it stunk terribly. So I wrapped it up in some plastic and put it in my check-in. And, you know, going through customs, they ask you stuff like, did you have any contact with cattle or livestock? Did you bring back any, you know, like leather or anything like that? And, of course, you just check no because they'll search you with rubber gloves and you know what that's like. So, well, you probably don't know what that's like, but it's bad. Um, I don't know what it's like, but I can assume what it's like. Why am I talking about this? Um, <laughs> So I go through customs, and the guy asks me, did you bring anything back with you? And I love to, I mean, it's not illegal to bring back knives, so I love to say when I'm in America, did you bring anything back with you? And I'm like, yeah, brought some knives. And on this case, I also brought a whip. I was like, yeah, I brought some knives and a whip. And uh, he looks at me, he's like, okay, you're excited about that? <laughs> um, and he's like, do any of those knives, are, do they have any, um, are they made out of hide? or their coverings made out of hide? Which I didn't think he was going to ask me that, in which one of mine was, is made out of hide. And so I'm just going to be honest. I lied to him. I said, oh, I don't think so. So I broke one of those commands. But, um, <laughs> you know, this knife still today smells nasty because it's dead animal hide. Now, why am I sharing this with you? I'm sharing this with you because of this. The tabernacle and the temple grounds where these people are making all of these sacrifices that God told them to make for their different sins had to have smelled terrible. And not only that, the whole city, like, had to have smelled terrible. Do you realize this? Like they were constantly making sacrifices that God told them to make of different animals for their sins, which means that that entire city had to have constantly smelled and reeked of these dead, burning animals. That's the first thought that came to my mind. The second thought was this. Having to sacrifice so many animals for all their different sins must have put a huge financial burden on the people. Again, I don't know. Um, well, first of all, think of the number of animals being killed back then. Like you make, you, you sin, God commanded, you sin, you make a sacrifice. You sin again, you make another sacrifice. I mean, dude, if I lived back then, there'd be animals going extinct. It would be bad. I mean, can you imagine like PETA and the SPCA, how they would have dealt with that? Like they would have had a fit. By the way, if I see another SPCA commercial, uh, I'm going to sue the SPCA. <laughs> the least they could do is change it every once in a while. I'm tired of hearing that Sarah McLaughlin song. You know what I'm talking about in the arms of an angel? Fly away from here. Um, and then they always say something like, you know, animals are stuck here lonely, sad and hopeless. And then they show you this picture of this cat that's all like, I'm like, man, of course nobody's going to want to come get that thing. Sarah McLaughlin wouldn't even take that thing. But having, I had to start, having to sacrifice so many animals for all their different sins must have put a huge Huge financial burden on these people. So going back to Ethiopia, we, we, we went to one village that was not as far out as these other ones we were supposed to hike to. And, 
and we get in there, and, and it's just customary. Like, when you have visitors, they feed you, even if they don't really have the ability financially to feed you. And so for us, they fed us chickpeas. That's what they had and were able to afford to give to us. So we're sitting there eating chickpeas, and, um, and, uh, and, and they fed us this weird drink and all that stuff. But we're sitting there, and there's a couple of chickens running around and kind of in the middle, and this cat with mange, one of those probably from an SPCA commercial, uh, with mange, and we're all like kicking it away because we're like, oh, I don't want mange. Get away from here. And it's like their pet cat, but it's disgusting. Um, but they gave us chickpeas because that's all they had. And I just imagine, okay, so these chickens or this cat, who knows what you'll eat over there, uh, if, they had, if they had killed one of them for us, which I have been places where they've killed their goat or they've killed chickens for us to eat, like that, that would have been a huge financial burden for them. And this is when this hit me. So like I'm thinking these two thoughts, like that place must have stunk, the tabernacle must have stunk, and think of the financial burden of making all these sacrifices of their sins It must have been on the people back in Exodus and Leviticus in that time period. It hit me at this point. If you flip to Galatians 3.24, it essentially says uh, God gave us the law to point us to Jesus. I want, I want to read it. I want you to hear what it actually says. Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Some translations say God gave us the law to point us to Jesus, to help us see our need for Jesus. So for the first time ever, I, I, I think I saw why, I, why Leviticus is so weird. And, and, and to be honest, it's no longer that weird anymore. It makes perfect sense now. I mean, think about this. The tabernacle back then, they're making all these sacrifices of animals and burning them and killing them for their sins. It had to have stunk terribly from all of the rotting carcasses and from the blood of the animals. But what an incredible reminder to the people of their sin and how it stinks before the Lord. No matter where you were in Jerusalem, you constantly smelled the aroma of the sacrifices of these animals for their sin. What an incredible reminder of how disgusting our sin is. You could literally smell the sin. And then having to sacrifice so many animals for all their different sins must have put a huge, huge financial burden on these people. I mean, again, what an incredible reminder to the people of the weight of their sin. I mean, they could literally feel the burden of their sin as their stomach churned from hunger because they had to kill, sacrifice what they were going to eat for their sins. They could literally feel the weight of their sin as they carried the animal to the temple to be sacrificed. I mean, it seems that much of the sacrificial law revealed in Leviticus and in Exodus was created to enable the people to smell the pungent odor of their sin and feel the heavy weight of their sin, all for the purpose of revealing their desperate need for something greater, who we know is Jesus. And here's what's so cool about this. Thousands of years before Jesus, God was preparing the way for Jesus. Thousands of years before Jesus, God was putting this law in place to help us see how desperately we need Jesus. And we'll never realize how desperately we need Jesus until we first realize how disgusting and how heavy our sin is. Our sin is disgusting. Our sin is heavy. But if we realize how heavy our sin is, then we realize more how freeing God's grace is. Galatians 3.24, again, God gave us the law to help us see our need for Jesus. 
And then Romans 5, 6 through 10, Paul writes, even while we were weak, even while we were still sinners, even while we were enemies, God sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And so I, I, I know we went long tonight. Um, in fact, we're just going to close with this. My, my hope for you tonight is to understand that going back to what we said last week, it, it really doesn't matter who you think God is. What matters is who God actually is. And it doesn't really matter what you think God said. What matters is what actually God said. And, and my hope is that, you know, last week we saw the people trembled because of his size and his power and his holiness. I hope tonight we've gotten even a better picture of his holiness. Like none of those ten commands we were able to hold completely or even at all. And that's just a glimpse of the holiness of God. And this sacrificial law that he introduces in Exodus, look, it wasn't to save them. It was to reveal even more so to them the disgustingness and the weight of their sin. And so when you think about what Jesus did when he went to the cross, think about what he actually carried with him to the cross. Because he lived a life without sin, he was able to carry all of our sin together as disgusting as it was and as heavy as it was to the cross, to kill it once and for all, to overcome it once and for all, so that we, when we put our trust in him, could be freed from our disgusting, heavy sin and be restored to God. I hope in the midst of this hour-long message, something has made sense. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.